didn't see anybody looking. So he went and he killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. Then later on, uh, when uh, he saw um, one Hebrew mistreating another one, he went up to him and said, uh, why are you doing this? You know, your brothers, treat your uh, uh, brothers with respect. And the one that was mistreating the other one said to him, uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian the other day? And Moses knew right away that he was had, that uh, people knew about it. And so he fled from Egypt before Pharaoh caught wind of it, lest he be killed himself. So he did something rash. He did it in his own strength, in his own power, with his own thinking. He kind of did the same thing that Abraham did. You remember you looked at Abraham and uh, God gave Abraham the promise that someone from his own body was going to be carry on his name and carry on the promise that God had given him that he would bless him and he would bless those that blessed him and curse those that cursed him. So he says, well, God's taking a long time. He waited about something like, I think, 11 years and uh, he, the child of the promise was not born to Sarah. So he and Sarah decided they were going to help God along and they gave Hagar to him as his hand, you know, as his wife. And so she became pregnant and bore Ishmael. But that was not God's plan. God's plan was to do something miraculous. That is, the child of the promise, Isaac, would be born to Sarah, who is a woman of uh, 90 years old at the time. And, uh, you know... Because of that, because of doing something rash, you know, Ishmael became the progenitor of the Arabs today, and Isaac became the progenitor of the modern-day Jews. And that's why we've got this big conflict between the two peoples. So Moses goes out there into the wilderness, and he spends... Forty years in the wilderness tending sheep. But those forty years, contrary to what people might think and maybe what Moses was thinking too, they were not wasted. Because he, just like David, remember David was a shepherd too. David learned to shepherd God's people as king. And so Moses did as the leader of Israel in leading them out. He learned to Put up with them, learned all of their idiosyncrasies and how to be patient with them. Then, after those 40 years, after those 40 years, God appears to him and gives him this new commission of delivering his people, Israel. And you read about this in Exodus chapters 3 through 4. Everybody knows the story. Moses is out there tending the sheep one day and he sees this burning bush. And the problem with the bush is it kept on burning and burning and burning and it was not consumed. So Moses says to himself, well, I'm going to turn aside and uh, take a look at this site. And he goes up to the burning bush and then God 
speaks to him out of the burning bush and tells him to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. And then God continues to speak to him and telling him that he has called him to go back to Egypt. Remember 40 years ago they were seeking to uh, kill him, to destroy his life. And God tells him that everybody that was out to uh, destroy his life is now dead. And he says, I want you to go and deliver my people Israel. Well, Moses tries to dodge this commission. He's not too sure if he's up to the task. And so he begins to ask God, speaking to him from this burning bush, and he's telling him, God, uh, I don't know about this. He says, uh, who am I? You know, in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 11. In other words, God, I can't really do this. You know, I'm not up to this task. I'm an old man now. You know, why would, didn't you give me this commission earlier? You know, when I was 40 years old, you know, uh, but you didn't intervene then and I blew it because I tried to take matters into my own hands. You know, I've wasted the opportunity that I had earlier. You know, there's no way I can do this. Not as old as I am. You know, and God will take you where you are. Okay. There's nobody too old for him. There's nobody too young for him. You remember the story of Jeremiah when God gave him his commission to be a prophet. And he says, alas, I'm just a child, you know. And uh, uh, God told him that he knew him before he was even formed in the womb and had commissioned him to this uh, uh, job of being a prophet to the nation of Israel. At a crucial time, just, uh, you know, during the time of uh, the prophet Jeremiah is when Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, uh, destroyed the temple and led the uh, Israel, the uh, people of Judah into captivity. Then Moses asked God, what is your name? And in, other, in essence, this question is asking, you know, who are you? Who are you, God? You know, I've asked you, who am I? You know, how, what about you? Who are you? You know, what am I? Tell them that your name is. You know, are you able to accomplish this task of delivering Israel from the Egyptians? Are you really able to do it? Are you, can you really do it? You know, are you powerful enough to do it? And then God tells him what his name is. And what was his name? Thus you, I am that I am. Thus will you tell them, I am has sent you. And there's so much that's just packed into that. I am whatever you need me to be. And that's the way God is in your life. He will be what you need to be. You just have to trust him and make him your Savior and Lord. So after telling Moses who he is, in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, uh, I'm not up to the task. Uh, you know, he says, uh, the people won't believe me. And in reply to this, God begins to ask him the questions. First question he asks is, what is that in your hand? Of course, he had the shepherd's staff in his hand. And uh, many folks think that they can't be used by God. They say, well, I, I, 
I'm not equipped, you know, I'm not a great speaker, I'm not uh, uh, this or, you know, I'm poor, I, you know, there's nothing I can really do for you, Lord. And, you know, the Lord has a call for everybody right here in this auditorium now. He has a call for your life. Are you yes. going to question that call? Are you going to say, well, I can't, I'm not up to the task, I'm not able to do it. And God said to Moses, what is that in your hand? In other words, you take what you do have. Don't think about what you don't have. Think about what you do have. What is that in your hand? You know, I once delivered a sermon on that. What is that in your hand? What do you have to offer to Jesus? And if you're honest enough, you can take a look at your life and you can see plenty there that you can do for God's kingdom. So stop looking at what you don't have and look at instead about what you do have. And Moses was given two miraculous uh, uh, signs to give to Moses. First of all, he was to take that staff that was in his hand and throw it down. And what happened to the staff? It became a snake. And it says, uh, the word says that when it became a snake, Moses fled from it. So it must have probably been a cobra or some other poisonous snake. And he knew it was poisonous and that's why he fled from it. And then God says, take the, the snake by the tail. And he took it by the tail and it became a staff again. So many people, you know, are afraid and God was telling uh, Moses, in essence, don't be afraid. Take your whatever uh, you're fearful of, take it by the tail. And it, you know, uh, I'll show you that it's nothing. So he took it by the tail and became a staff again. Then the other miracle that he gave him is he said, put your, you know, hand inside your robe. He, he did that, pulled it out, and it, be, it was leprous. He says, now put it back in. He put it back in and withdrew it. And it was healed once again. You know, and uh, God was telling him, you can take these signs and demonstrate to uh, Pharaoh, you know, your commission. That your God is an awesome God as we've been singing. Amen. So... The further miracles that uh, would be wrought through the hand of Moses in the land of Egypt uh, were that were perpetrated by God, in effect were God's judgment, as we're going to see, on the false gods of Egypt. God was demonstrating to them that these gods that you are worshiping, Egyptians, they are false gods. I am the true God. Now this first miracle of throwing the snake down, or throwing the staff down and having it become a snake was in effect plague zero, what I might call plague zero. Uh, Moses' rod becomes a snake and as I said before, it was almost certainly a Moses because uh, uh, was certainly a cobra because Moses fled from it. Now, this was significant because the cobra was the sign of Pharaoh. You know, you see the headdresses, you know, that the uh, mummies wear 
in uh, these uh, uh, sarcophagus, like everybody knows, you know, the story about King Tut, you know, how uh, they found the treasures of King Tut, and he was wearing a headdress that had a snake, a cobra on it, because the cobra was the symbol of Pharaoh. And while Moses is demonstrating this miracle before Pharaoh, what happened? The magicians of uh, uh, Egypt threw down their staffs and they too became cobras. But what happened? Moses' cobra ate their cobras. Moses' cobra ate their cobras, demonstrating that there's power in the occult. Satan has power in this world. But God's power is always greater than the power of the devil. And this was in fact a judgment upon Pharaoh. Because the people of Egypt considered Pharaoh to be a god. And when Moses' snake ate up the uh, snakes of the, um, of the magicians in Pharaoh's court, God was telling Pharaoh, in effect, the people say that you're a god, but you're not a god. I'm the god. And you're not such hot stuff after all, Pharaoh. So it was kind of God's judgment right then and there demonstrated to Pharaoh that he was not, in fact, the Almighty God. Now Moses gives some further excuses. He says in chapter 4, verse 10 of uh, Exodus, that he is slow of speech and tongue. In other words, you're picking the wrong man, God, I can't speak. But then God reassures him that he is the creator of the mouth. He's the one that created the eye. He's the one that created the ear. And so God will be his mouthpiece. And finally, Moses just begs God to send someone else. Now, God has been patient with Moses up to this point. But now... He becomes angry, it says in uh, verse 13. And he tells him, to, if you know that's the way you feel, then just get Moses, uh, your brother Aaron. You know He can speak well. Get him to be your mouthpiece for it. You, you will tell him what to say, and he will say it for me. And so Moses goes on his way to Egypt. And along the way, he picks up Aaron. And the two of them get before God, uh, before Pharaoh, and tell him, let my people go. And because Pharaoh continues to refuse to let them go, you know, the ten plagues of Egypt uh, proceed. And as I said, each plague was a judgment upon one of the gods of Egypt. You have the river Nile turning to blood. Then you have a plague of frogs, a plague of lice, a plague of flies, plague of uh, pestilence for the livestock, plague of boils, plague of hail, plague of locusts, a plague of darkness, and finally a plague of the death of the firstborn children. And you can imagine the things that the Egyptians were worshiping uh, for these plagues to come about. Now, as I spoke to you some weeks ago, during the ten plagues, 
Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It was hardened and continued to be hardened. And there's this old theological chestnut. You know, Exodus chapter 8 verse 15 tells us that Moses, er, I'm sorry, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then in chapter 10 verse 1, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moreover, if God was doing the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, how could he bring about this judgment upon Pharaoh and his people? Well, the answer to this theological chestnut is number one, the, both accounts are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart and then God hardened his heart afterward. Every, that is, every miracle that God performed before Pharaoh beyond that continued to bring him a deeper and more hardening of his heart because he refused to relent. He'd give an appearance of relenting, but then he'd go back on his word. So each miracle just proceeded to harden Pharaoh's heart even further. And what we learn about God, God is uh, this, that God will continue to establish us further in the state where we are. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, that said <clears throat> for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it is the power of God to, to salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and, and then to the Greek for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from you know the, the, the verse from faith to faith so you go you continue and if you continue in the faith, you go from faith to faith. You know, each time you see God working miracles in your life, it just increases your faith that much more. But if you're in a state of unbelief, it will just continue to make you even harder of heart. It uh, tells us that in uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 13. He says, take heed lest any of you be hardened through unbelief. You know, if you don't respond in faith to God, then you would just continue to get hardened more and more in that state of unbelief. And I've told you before about uh, Chuck Swindoll. You know, Chuck Swindoll was a big influence on my life. Uh, he was the pastor of a church in Fullerton. And then uh, he founded his uh, radio ministry, Insight for Living. Later he wound up in uh, Tennessee. But uh, in that, his problem, uh, program, Insight for Living, I used to listen to that every day when I was driving into work. And it really was a difficult period in my life. You know, I'd been, uh, my wife and I at the time uh, had been turned down for you know, being a, uh, an Assembly to God missionary to Thailand, which is the way that I, uh, that was my one dream of life. And uh, God closed that door. And uh, then he opened up a new door, which was for me to uh, work for the U.S. Navy. And he provided me a good job. I wasn't happy with it, but, you know, I had to uh, do what 
the way that God directed it. And during that difficult time of my life, I remember that Chuck Swindoll would come on Insight for Living, you know, every day, Monday through Friday at 7, 7 a.m., and I'd listen to him on the radio as I was driving into work. And there was one thing that he told me, he didn't tell me directly, but he spoke you know, in his messages that I've always remembered. And he said, take heed, make sure you do not traffic in unlived truth. You hear the truth, it should penetrate your heart, and then you act on it. So don't traffic in unlived truth. You know, it, it uh, says in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the unbelief of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Here they saw all the miraculous signs that God did in Egypt before leaving, and then his miraculous signs in the wilderness afterward how they were led by the uh, pillar of fire by night and the, the cloud by day, and how God provided for them. He provided the manna. He provided water from them, uh, water out of the rock, these miraculous signs. He even provided quail because they were lusting uh, for something besides the manna. They weren't satisfied with God's provision for them. And it says there in Hebrews chapter uh, 4, verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Us Preached to us, referring to the new covenant, as well as unto them with the old covenant. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. They saw all these miracles of God, but because they were in a state of unbelief, it just made their hearts harder and harder. Because they didn't mix it with faith. And so, how do you know if you're, uh, the truth that you're hearing is mixed with faith in your life? You know this by whether or not you're acting on it. So, I would urge you, Brothers and sisters, the truth that I speak to you today, act on it. Another good example, a New Testament example of this is found in uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, they were talking to Jesus here, we want to see a sign from you. Keep in mind, he's been giving them signs all along, right? Healing of the leper, the calming of the storm, the miracle of walking on water, the miracle of casting out demons. They saw and heard about all these miraculous signs, but they're saying, give us a miraculous sign, Jesus, and then we'll believe on you. And he answered, it says verse 29 of Matthew chapter 12, He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he explains that the sign, what the sign of Jonah was all about. 
Remember, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. The great fish spit him out on dry land, and then he walked to Nineveh to preach the word of God to them. And so just as Moses was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man, you know, he himself would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then he would be raised from the dead. That was the greatest miraculous sign that God, Jesus could have done. The fact that death could not hold him Amen. after his crucifixion. And he performed that miracle, that sign. They knew all about it. But what happened? Their hearts were still hardened even far, uh, further. And they did not respond in faith to him. Now, during those plagues, five different compromises were proposed by Pharaoh to the uh, children of Israel. And the lesson for us in, in, uh, with that is that Satan is try, continually trying to get us to compromise in our Christian convictions. You know, the devil is ticked off. He was ticked off when you turned to Christ because you turned away from him. And many people don't realize that when we live for ourselves, we are really living for Satan. They say, you know, I don't want God in control of my life. You know, I want to run the show. You know, I want to control my life myself. What they don't realize is when you allow self-will, and the, the essence of uh, sin is nothing more than self-will. You want what you want rather than what God wants in your life. When they allow self-will or sin to control them, that allows Satan to, control, to, to take charge. The key to understanding what I'm going to tell you in this message is this, is to remember that Egypt, in this story that we've been talking about, is a type of the world and the world system. And the world system is contrary to God. Remember, you've got three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three of those work in tandem. Since Satan is called the god of this world, or as the Greek reads, the god of this age, this present evil age that we live in, you know, things will change radically when the Lord returns. <clears throat> Satan is the god of this age, and when we allow self-will, that is the flesh, to uh, as energized by the world, to reign supreme in our lives, it is really that is Satan that's in control of your life. And I don't want Satan controlling my life. You know, how about you? The first compromise. You know, Moses originally told Pharaoh in uh, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
And then he further tells Pharaoh in uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, that it's going to be a three-day journey into the wilderness. So what happens after the three, three days? You know, is Israel going to come back? You know, when I thought about this story, it, I recalled the, the story of uh, Abraham Lincoln. How many of you knew that Abraham Lincoln, when he took office, you know, he wasn't going to set the slaves free. He just wanted to make sure that slavery would not spread further than what it already had. And then, of course, you know, the South seceded from the Union. You know, a few months later, they had the bombardment of Fort Sumter in the Charleston Harbor, and the Civil War began. And it was only until later on, in 1863, you know, two years later, that Abraham Lincoln, you know, gave the Emancipation Proclamation that freed all the slaves. So you've got a kind of a similar story right here. You know, Moses is just saying, we're only going to go three days, uh, uh, you know, journey into the wilderness. But it wound up to be far longer than just the three days. Why was that? Because Pharaoh tried to take it into his own hands. Right? You know the story. He sent the, uh, his chariots after them. And then, of course, you had the parting of the Red Sea. And it was like, you know, Moses had burned the bridges behind him. There was no returning to Egypt after that. And there was no returning to slavery after Abraham Lincoln, you know. And, and in effect, the South had burned their bridges with the Union, too. They just made it inevitable for the slaves to be set free. So... The first compromise that Pharaoh pr proposes to Moses and the children of Israel is found in Exodus chapter 8, verse 25. Then, Moses called for, uh, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. In other words, it's okay to offer sacrifices uh, to your God. But you got to do it right here in Egypt, right here where you are. You, none of this going three days journey into the wilderness. Now for this, for us, this means the devil tells us, okay, it's okay to be a Christian, just don't leave Egypt. What is Egypt? Egypt is the world. So you stay in the world, you allow the world to brainwash you, with all of its lies. In other words, it's okay to do whatever you want to do, you know, which is what the world tells you. It's okay to get drunk, to take drugs, commit sexual immorality. It's okay to carouse and live it up. Good example of this is the Christmas parties. You know, in just a couple of weeks, you know, the offices, you know, uh, the work offices, they're going to be having their Christmas parties, right? And what do they do in these Christmas parties? They get liquored up. They get drunk, right? Am I right? You know, I used to wonder about that. You know, why do people get drunk, you know, to celebrate the Lord's birth? 
kind of seemed sacrilegious to me. And then I found out more about the history of Christmas. What day is Christmas on? 25th. December 25th. You know what December 25th is? It's an ancient Roman holiday called Saturnalia. And what would the, the uh, how would the uh, pagan Romans celebrate uh, Saturnalia? They'd get drunk and carouse. Then it hit me. Of course, they're getting drunk, getting drunk and caroused at the office parties these days because that's the way that people have celebrated Christmas from time immemorial, you know, for the last 2,000 years. So it's just naturally that they continue that on. Now, Moses' response to that first compromise, verse 26 of... Uh, Exodus chapter 8. And Moses said, It is not right to, to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? You know, we're putting ourselves in jeopardy if we offer sacrifices to our God in the sight of the people of uh, Egypt. So Moses judges that for the children of Israel to sacrifice into the front of the Egyptians, that would be seen as having contempt for them, and they would pay the price. You know, one of the things you learn, too, brothers and sisters, you can't ride a black horse and a white horse at the same time, can you? You have your foot in the stirrup of uh, the black horse and the foot in the stirrup of the white horse, what happens? They decide to go off in different directions and you're left hanging. That's what happens when you choose to serve the world and to serve God. You can't do it. It's impossible. Now, this does not mean that we leave the world entirely, unlike some groups teach. You know, anybody ever see the movie Witness? You know, Witness is a story of a man that begins to live among the Amish. Okay? And I recall one of the, the elders, I think it was the mother of, or the father, I mean, of uh, the woman that Harrison Ford, the protagonist in the uh, uh, movie was falling in love with and he was telling uh, his daughter you know dealing with you know this you know love relationship between her and Harrison Ford he quoted second uh, Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 therefore come out from among them and be separate says the Lord now the key to understanding that is the last part of that. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. You still have to live in the world. You can't just go off and isolate you, yourself with the rest of the world, which is what the, the Amish do. That's a distorted interpretation of what this verse means. The key is in that last phrase, do not touch what is unclean. That's what it means. 
And we know this is what it means because uh, earlier, in the earlier epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes to them, you know, concerning a man that was involved in really a a form of gross immorality of having his uh, father's uh, uh, wife, you know, probably his uh, stepmother, He writes, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is saying, you know, you go out of the world, the world in terms of its thinking and its practices but you don't isolate yourself from the people for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son go ye therefore into all the world says the great commission if you leave the world you isolate yourself from the world who's going to evangelize them Amen? You need to be there. Compromise number two. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. And by the way, intercede for me. So this devil's compromise to us is, okay, okay. I accept that you, you know, uh, you know, you're a Christian now. Just don't overdo it. You know, you don't want to be a fanatic about you. The devil tells you, you know, don't go overboard with this Christianity thing. And then he then will do everything he can to drive a wedge between you and your God. He'll tell you such things as, uh, you're kind of busy right now. You're too busy to go to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. You know what I mean? Amen. You're too busy to attend church. Uh, Don't read your Bible. It's boring. You don't understand it anyway. So, you know, just let it gather dust on yourself. Or... When you first wake up in the morning, boy, you got a lot to do. You know, you're too busy to uh, uh, pray. You know, don't, don't, you know, don't bother praying today. You know, and, and let me tell you, brothers and sisters, you're never too busy to pray. Amen. In fact, you need to be busy praying about your coming day and asking God in His wisdom to plan out your day. And if you do that, you'll be amazed at how much extra time you seem to have if you just give it your day to God and let Him order it. You know, to compromise, brothers and sisters, it kind of reminds me of the story of the bear and the hunter. Anybody ever heard this story here? You know, this hunter, you know, winter's coming on. Hunter said, you know, I really need to get a fur coat to keep me warm this winter. So he goes out looking for a bear. And he finds a bear. The bear is in this clearing. 
he raises up, gets the uh, uh, bear in his, his sights, and he's about ready to squeeze the trigger, and the bear roars out, What do you want? <laughs> and the hunter says, I want a fur coat. And the bear says, Well, I want a full stomach. So let's talk about things. And they disappear into the forest there. After a while, the bear comes out alone. And both of them got their wish. You know, the bear got the full stomach and the hunter got the fur coat. Of course, of course he was inside the bear, but that, that's beside the point. And that's what that will happen to you if you compromise with the world. The world will seek to devour you in the same way. Too often we live with these lives of compromise instead of uh, taking authority over it. You notice that last phrase there? Pharaoh says, by the way, uh, Moses, while you're out there sacrificing in the wilderness not too far away, be sure to intercede for me too. Now, Pharaoh had no in interest at all in turning to the God of the Israelites, the true and living God. So this third compromise is in your personal relationships with your friends. You know, it's a true saying that you can't pick your relatives, those you're related to, but you can pick your friends. You can choose who your friends are. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. So instead of associating with worldly people whose ideas will only serve to drag you down in your Christian life, instead get good Christian friends that will promote your relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? That will promote your uh, Christian walk. If your friends drag you down, many times it's best to just cut them loose. They will show their true colors, especially when you try to witness, uh, you know, to them. Now, it's okay for your Christian thing with you. Just don't try to, you know, lay that trip on me. That's what they'll tell you. They may even try to compromise with you by urging you to pray for them, like Pharaoh did here with Moses. And you may get a glimmer of hope. Maybe there's hope for them. Maybe they will receive the Lord. But in actuality, like Pharaoh, they have no intention of turning their life over to the Lord. Your non-Christian friends may try to bargain with you uh, by saying this, but all the while, they're just hoping that you'll get over this Christian thing and you'll go back to doing all those ungodly things with them. You know, we hope that he, he or she will get off of this Jesus kick, you know, and that's only going to be temporary. And then we'll back, be back just like old times. I remember Pastor Sandra to, used to talk about that, you know, she talked about when she and eventually Randy came to the Lord, you know, uh, and started living godly lives. You know, their worldly friends kind of went by the wayside. Okay, moving right along. Compromise number four. 
Then he, that is Pharaoh, said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you go and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Scare tactic right there. You see that? Not so. No, your little ones are not going to go. You know. Now, go now, you who are men. And serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So, in other words, the devil says to you, it's okay for you, you as men or uh, women, you know, you adults, to go and offer this sacrifice to the Lord. Just leave your families behind. Leave your families out of your Christianity. So the fourth compromise is that it's fine for you to be a Christian, but just don't teach and preach it to other family members. Especially don't teach it to your children. And this is over, uh, completely contrary to what the scriptures say. Because over and over again, we are commanded. You know, the book of Deuteronomy is particularly specific about that, that you are to teach the Christian ways, the Christian uh, principles and the Christian scriptures to your children. You know, I don't have time to go through all the different uh, uh, scriptures, but there's a whole bunch of them in the book of Deuteronomy. And what if you're a wife? You turn to Christ, but your husband, you know, doesn't do that, you know, doesn't turn to Christ. First Peter chapter 3 verse 1 tells us something interesting. He says, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. You know, usually it's the husband that's the leader of the household. But many times if the husband is not a Christian, it, it's left up to the wives. And she should just live the godliest life that she can in front of her husband. And maybe he will see the difference in her life and in turn turn to, turn to the Lord. Okay, fifth and final compromise. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go with you also. Exodus chapter 10, verse 24. I think Pharaoh is finally starting to wise up that if he lets the Israelites go on this three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord, that maybe they wouldn't be coming back. And so... He wants to keep their possessions, you know, the flocks and the herds. He wants to keep the possessions behind. Why? Because he figures that if he keeps their possessions, that they will not pay heed. You know, they, that they will come back. They'll come back to get the flocks and the herds. So the fifth and final compromise is that the devil says, okay, be that Christian you want to be. Only tell your God to keep his cotton-picking hands off of your possessions, your money and your possessions. 
Those belong to you. You know what God says? God says that your possessions now belong to him. That they should be under his control. You know, I've read to you uh, 1 Timothy chapter 7. I'm, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I wrote in front of uh, the top of my Bible on this particular passage, God's value system. And here's the heart of it. Paul tells Timothy, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain you can carry nothing out. So you leave everything behind when you depart from this earth. So you never really owned it in the first place, did you? We're born into this world with a physical body and nothing else, and we even leave that physical body behind. You can't take it with you. Amen? So if, if you can't take it with you, you never did own it anyway. You're just a steward of the things that you think that you own. And you're to you be a good steward with that and put it to good use. Continuing on, verse 8, And having food and raiment, let's be content with that. Food and clothing, be content with that. You know, normally we think that the uh, three basic needs we have are food, clothing, and shelter. But Paul doesn't even mention shelter there. Jesus said the same thing. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has... No place to lay his head. You know, I came to grips with this matter of possessions early in my Christian life. I said, the two most spiritual people in the New Testament, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, both said this. You got food and clothing, that's enough. You know, everything else is just extra and extraneous. Verse 9. For they that would be rich fall into temptation. That Literally, that says, those that want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. You know, that's one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. Everybody says, oh, money's the root of all evil. No, it's not the root of all evil. Money in of itself is neutral. It's the love of money and not the root of all evil. All, the way the Greek reads is all kinds of evil. You can see this is what's happening at our southern borders right now. The greed of the drug cartels down there. They love money. And what's happening is they're enslaving people, selling people even into sex slavery. They're selling drugs which are causing the death of millions of people. Not, well, total, you know, but hundreds of thousands of people on uh, yearly now, especially with this fentanyl epidemic. They care about money. They don't care about other people because they love the money. Okay, so 
Uh, you know, these people, they, they don't not only get the money, but they get power from it, right? These billionaires have a lot of power. You know, you know most, who knows what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you? Well, for these people that love money, the golden rule for them is, he who has the gold makes the rules. And they try to rule your life. And this, that's happening today. You know, these billionaires, millionaires and billionaires are trying to run our lives. Trying to tell us what car we can drive. Telling us that we can't eat meat. And so on and so forth. Meanwhile, they live it up. And one final thought. You ever heard that expression, time is money? Yeah. Time and money are related, aren't they? And somebody once said that you can always tell what a person's priorities are by how they spend their time and how they spend their money. So how do you spend your time? You know, it all comes down to a matter of priorities, brothers and sisters. And that's what this message is all about is the devil is going to try to get you to compromise your priorities. Okay, I'm run a little bit long here. My concluding thoughts are, what is your attitude? What is your priority? What are your priorities in life? Do we have an attitude of compromise in our Christian convictions? Is God in control regarding our view of the world, our commitment to God, our relationships, our families, and our possessions? Is God the Lord of your life in those areas? Moses' attitude was found in that first uh, uh, scripture that I read to you, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Moses learned through those experiences of being kicked out of Egypt losing everything and having to tend sheep for 40, day, uh, 40 years. And by the way, you know, shepherds in the Egyptian mentality, they were the lowest of the low. You know, they were considered, that was considered the lowliest profession. God humbled Moses through that experience. And he learned to live for eternal values. He looked at his life and he recognized the fact that he was on the earth for, well, he managed to live for 120 years. Most of us are going to live for a lot less. And it's my prayer that we will learn this lesson. Learn to live for eternal values, brothers and sisters, and do not compromise with the world. Amen.
Okay, with that in mind, let's go on ahead and uh, uh, partake of communion here. It's the first Sunday of the month, so we always have communion Sunday. I know I've been kind of long-winded again today. I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm, I'm very serious about this message, brothers and sisters. And I always tell you that the purpose of communion is twofold. Number one, it's a time to remember the Lord's death on behalf of our sins. With both the bread and the cup, the Lord said, Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. And the Lord Jesus, on the same night he was in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. And then Paul further added in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death. Until he returns. So the first purpose of communion is to remember what the terrible price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross there for your sins. To redeem you to God. Yep. Amen. You closed it out prematurely there, uh, uh, Lane. Oh, you did. Okay, bring it back up. Boo. And <laughs> What do you mean, boo? Okay. Second of all, it is a time to closely examine our lives for sin and to re- see how committed we really are. That's what this is all about, right? The opposite of compromise is commitment. Amen? If we fall short in either thing, uh, sin in our lives or in our commitment, then we need to make new commitments to Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 31 and 32. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So 